you take out your Bibles with me, please, and open them to the book of Genesis. In particular, I'd ask that you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 12 as we come to our final message on these first three very important verses of Genesis 12, one of the crucial moments of the Bible, the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. It is not only a crucial moment in the Bible, it is an incredibly joyful moment. We have, given, we have been given so much in Christ that is foreshadowed here, promised here in these verses. So look with me at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you, All the families of the earth shall be blessed. Let me remind us about where we are. God has spoken to Abram. He has made these great promises. As we will later see in our study of Abraham's life, Abraham lives and ultimately dies believing that God will fulfill these promises. And God does. God fulfills these promises in shadow in the Old Testament. He fulfills these promises in unimaginable reality in the New Testament. I hope over the last few weeks of looking at these verses, you have seen some things very clearly. Let me mention some things that I hope you already now know very well. First, I hope that you have seen how the fulfillment of these promises in the Old Testament always fell short of what was actually promised. That these promises that God makes to Abram are fulfilled in the Old Testament, but only partially, only in shadow, never to the extent in which it was promised. So, for example, God promised a nation, a great nation, an everlasting nation populous nation, right? Your descendants shall be as the dust in the earth, the stars in the sky. Well, national Israel became a vast multitude, but they were never as large. They were never as great. They were never as populous as the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or even the United States today They became a large, powerful nation, but they were never that large. They were never that powerful, and they certainly were not everlasting. God promised to give all the land of of Canaan to Abram and his descendants. And in Joshua, they come and they take the land, but they only take part of the land. They do not drive out all the inhabitants as they were commanded to do, nor do they take all that God was giving them. Moreover, Abram himself, 
as God had promised, he would take possession of the land. He does not take possession of the land in Joshua. He's dead. Even the gift of God as their God was limited in the Old Testament. His presence was in the Holy of Holies, a room in which only one person could enter on one day a year. Israelites rejoiced that God was with them, but they themselves could not enter His presence. So the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram in the Old Testament were never the true fulfillment. They always fell short of the glory of the promise. They were fulfillments in shadow, pointing to the true fulfillment to come. hope you've seen that clearly over the last few weeks. Second, I hope that you have seen how the fulfillment of these promises in the New Testament go over and beyond the promises and are greater and grander than Abraham or you or I could ever have imagined. The nation promised to Abraham, the the kingdom promised to come from him, the the kingdom of God as it's called when John the Baptist comes proclaiming it and Jesus comes proclaiming it. It is established by Christ. It includes multitudes of multitudes, millions of millions of citizens from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. This nation that comes from Abraham established by Christ is greater than any nation, any kingdom this world has ever seen. There's never been a nation with a king like this king, Jesus Christ. There's never been a nation that has been indestructible, unending, characterized by peace and love and righteousness. A nation in which every citizen loves the king and the king personally died for every citizen. This is a citizen, this is a, a nation in which every citizen is a king, every citizen is a priest. All are one in mind and heart and purpose, and yet they glorify God in their diversity of gifts and diversity of roles. This is a kingdom unlike any the world has ever known, unlike any Abraham could possibly have ever imagined. The land that God promised to Abraham. What do we find in the New Testament? Romans 4, Paul says Abraham and his offspring, they're not just heirs of this little strip of land in Palestine. They're heirs of the world. Jesus, the the supreme offspring of Abraham, is made Lord over all this whole planet. And one day He's going to come and make this whole world new, including that little strip of Palestine. And He's going to give it to us to be with Him on forever. Abraham, oh... It makes you wonder how fully he really grasped what was coming. Hebrews gives us an indication that he he knew something was up. He knew that these were big promises. The promise that God would be their God meant more than simply God would be with them in the sense of protecting them and caring for them. We find in the New Testament that God fulfills this promise not just by being with them, but by actually coming into His people. That all of God's true believers from Adam to the last one before Christ returns, God Himself has come in them to make them holy. He dwells in them, has made us temples and us together a temple. 
And we learn that we are going to enter into a new heavens and a new earth. The ultimate holy of holies. The ultimate garden of Eden in which we will be with Him in His holy special presence forever. So in the Old Testament, the fulfillment of these promises in national Israel is always partial. It it always falls short. But in Jesus Christ... In the church, in the New Testament people of God, we find that they go bigger and better and more glorious than we could have imagined. Are you with me? Have you seen those things over the last couple of weeks? Nod yes, if you, if you think yes. Okay, good, thank you. Finally, I hope you have seen how all these great blessings that God is giving to us come only through the one offspring of Abram, Abraham, Jesus Christ. That every blessing that God has given to us, every one of these promises that God promised to Abram and his offspring come only through the one offspring, Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who is exalted as king over the kingdom. And it is he who creates the kingdom by sending his spirit into people's lives Causing them to be born again. Bringing them into citizenship. It is He who makes God their God and places His Spirit in them. It is Jesus who raises up pastors and missionaries and church planners and Christians worldwide to do evangelism and missions and to build this kingdom. It is Jesus who on the last day will radically renew this world and make the new earth and give it to His people. Friends, Apart from Jesus Christ, you have no citizenship in the kingdom of God. Apart from Jesus Christ, you do not have the promise of a land that is fairer than day. Apart from Jesus Christ, you do not have God as your God, both in you and with you forever. And as we come to the last part of the Abrahamic covenant this morning, morning, the promise that God's people will be a blessing. I want us to see that it is in Jesus Christ, through Him, that that is fulfilled. So here's our outline for just the next few minutes. We're going to look at the promise itself, how it's partially fulfilled in the Old Testament, how it's gloriously fulfilled in the church, and some implications. So let's jump in. Look with me at verse 2, because from the very beginning, God makes clear that his intention is not just to bless Abraham for Abraham's sake. His intention is to make Abraham a blessing to the world. He says in verse 2, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. In other words, Abram, this isn't about you mainly. Rather, you are going to be an instrument in my hand. I am going to work through you. I am going to work through your offspring. And by blessing you and by blessing them, I am going to bless others. To be precise, God's intention is to use Abram and his offspring to cause others around the world to know him, to fear him, and to enter into his grace. And become his children. Verse 3. God says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. 
This is God's declaration of oneness with His people. Those who bless His people, He will care for them and will bless them. Those who dishonor His people, He will condemn. Those who give even a cup of cold water to one of God's children will be blessed. But those who cause one of God's children to stumble will have God against them. In other words, God's going to be a father to His people. Every father thinks well and wants to bless those who bless his children. And every father gets up in arms and is ready to defend his children against those who would do harm to them. Well, God is going to bless those who bless His people, curse those who dishonor His people, and in doing so, He's going to draw many to believe on Him. We'll see that in a minute. The rest of verse 3, In you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There will be no group of people, no family on the earth, untouched by the blessing of God. Every people group will hear of the true God. Every people group will have some who are brought into His blessing. And so through Abraham and his offspring, God intends to bless the world. Now, let's look at the Old Testament and see how this is kind of fulfilled, but not really. (laughs) Did national Israel, did Abraham's descendants, as they're made into a nation in the Old Testament, did they cause others to see the glory of God and to enter into His blessing? Answer, yes. Yes. Let me give you some examples of some folks who came to know the glory of God, to fear God, to join with God's people through national Israel. Look with me at Exodus 7. First five verses of Exodus 7. God is declaring His purposes to Moses. Exodus 7 verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You should speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment." The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. What did God promise? I'm going to bless those who bless my people. I'm going to curse those who dishonor my people. God says, I'm going to bring curses on Egypt. And as I do that to bring my people out of Egypt, the Egyptians are going to know that I am the Lord. Now look at the result of all this. In Exodus 12. Look at Exodus 12. Look with me at verse 33. Exodus 12, verse 33. 
were showing how God used His Old Testament people to bring, to, to bring His glory and His grace to foreigners, to Gentiles, to pagans. Exodus 12, verse 33. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. That's because God has just killed their firstborn sons. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leaven, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked, and thus they plundered the Egyptians. Suddenly the Egyptians are giving all their wealth to their slaves. What had changed? They had come to fear their God. Keep reading. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. A mixed multitude also went up with them. In other words, when Israel left Egypt, there were others. Some Egyptians, probably others of other nationalities and ethnicities that were in that nation who joined with Israel. In fact, when Israel comes to Mount Sinai and is constituted as a nation, there are many among them who are not Abraham's physical descendants, but they have come to know the Lord through God's dealings with national Israel, and they desire to be with His people. Through God's blessing of Israel, others were taught to fear Him, and some were surely brought into His grace. Let me show you one more example. Look at Joshua 2. The spies of Joshua, they go into Jericho, they meet Rahab, the prostitute, a pagan, a Gentile. Look at verse 8, Joshua 2, verse 8. Before the men lay down, she, that's Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord, what do you notice about that word Lord? All capital letters. This is His name, Yahweh. She names the God of Israel, right? I know that Yahweh, your God, has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord, Yahweh, speaks His name, dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So what has happened here? God is fulfilling His promise to Abram through His offspring, Other people, Gentiles, other families of the earth are coming to know the true God and are being saved. 
Rahab chose to unite herself and her family with Israel. She ends up being in the genealogy of Jesus himself. So there is fulfillment in the Old Testament of this great promise. And yet, as you can see, it falls so very short of what was actually promised. Because throughout the Old Testament, we have examples here and there of of this group of people or this individual or this particular foreigner coming and, and fearing the true God. But in no way can we say that in Old Testament Israel, all the families of the earth were blessed. By the time Israel was constituted as a nation, there were peoples living on parts of the globe that Israel had never heard of. Moreover, it was not long before Israel's unfaithfulness to her God caused others to curse their God rather than fear Him. As we saw in Romans 2 a few weeks back, Paul says concerning Israel, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So that rather than being brought to fear God, trust God, love God, ultimately the big picture of the Old Testament is that people think less of God because of Israel. Let me show you one more passage before we see the big fulfillment. Turn with me to Zechariah 8. Zechariah 8. If you're using a... uh, Pew Bible, it's page 796. The rest of you are on your own. Zechariah 8. Beginning in verse 11. God says, But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people, As in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heaven shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, So will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. In other words, Israel's unfaithfulness to God, their rank idolatry, their rank intermarrying with pagan peoples, taking up their gods, living in in all sorts of abominations, caused them to be weakened, caused God's protection to be taken off of them. They were given as exiles to foreign nations. They became, Israel as a nation, became a curse word among the peoples. That's how little the nations thought of Israel. And if that's how little they thought of Israel, how little do you think they thought of Israel's God. And yet, God says now to this little remnant that's been brought back to Jerusalem after all these judgments, He restates His promise. Right? He is going to fulfill His promise to Abraham to make this, this little group of shabby people who've been able to make it back He is going to make them a blessing to all the peoples of the world. How? 
God, there was a time when we had King David on the throne and we were a wealthy nation. That time is gone. We now have a temple that when the, when, when the old folks look at it and they remember the temple we used to have, they cry. We're not the people we used to be. We're just a little group of people. How in the world are you going to bless all the nations through us? Answer, because from you, in a little while, more than a little while, 400 years, but it's coming, a little baby's going to be born. (laughs) And he's going to be the offspring from Abraham through whom God will bless the world. The Lord Jesus comes. He preaches love to others, even love to the Gentiles of the world. He declares that the kingdom of God is not just for physical descendants of Abraham, but for any who will trust Abraham's God. He drives the money changers out of the temple, saying my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And then he goes to the cross. Revelation 5, 9 and 10, we hear the 24 elders around the throne singing to our Lord Jesus Christ, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. What happened when Jesus was slain? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Every promise that God made to Abraham finds its fulfillment with Jesus on the cross. At the cross, Jesus purchased by His blood the salvation of His people from every family of the earth. He guaranteed in that moment that their sins would be forgiven that the Spirit of God would come into their lives and give them faith, and that every promise made to Abraham would be given to them. Through Abraham's offspring, Jesus, the whole world is blessed. Jesus rises from the dead, alive, well, and He commands, He commissions, He equips, He moves His people by His Spirit to take the gospel to the world He is guaranteed that in each and every group of people to whom the gospel goes, there will be some purchased by His blood and He will ensure that they will believe. The church, those who are Abraham's offspring through faith, are now the instruments that Jesus uses to bless the world. And this gospel of this kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 24, 14. So, let me mention three ways that God is right now blessing the world through Abraham's true offspring, the church, you and I. These are the implications for you and me. You'll hear it as we do these. Number one, God is blessing the world right now, fulfilling His promise to Abraham as His people proclaim His standards of morality. That is, let those who 
denounce Christianity, those who don't like Christianity, they can gripe, they can grumble all they want, but this cannot be denied in those cultures of the world where Christianity has come and there the Christian morality has been adopted, morality has improved. Remember, there was a time when English people, the the original dwellers of the, the United Kingdom, they sacrificed their children to Molech before Christianity came to those shores. Cannibalism cannot stand in a culture where Christian morals have been embraced. It used to be commonplace, still is in a few places in our world, for when a husband died, they killed his wife so she could be buried with him. That cannot stand in a world where Christian morality has been embraced. Child sacrifice cannot stand. Christianity's moral principles of the dignity of human life, the respecting of one's property, the importance of sexual purity, the goodness of honesty and contentment, these have been a blessing to every culture in which they have come. There are millions upon millions of Americans today who do not know Jesus, who do not love God, but they are blessed this very moment that they are living in a culture where Christianity has come. And the implication for us is that we must never stop proclaiming God's law. Though we love God's mercy. And we're not going to stop proclaiming God's mercy and His grace in Jesus Christ. Yet, we do not stop proclaiming in our pulpits, in our homes, in our conversations, the laws of God. Because the law of God is good. It is a blessing to every society in which it comes. It is love to preach the law of God to people. And so we must not stop preaching the dignity of every human life. We will not stop preaching on the evils of idolatry, of irreverence, of disrespect to parents, of hatred and murder, sexual immorality of all types, theft, dishonesty, covetousness. We will not stop denouncing those sins. I am not very concerned about whether or not the Ten Commandments hang framed in a courtroom, but the Ten Commandments had better be proclaimed in Christian pulpits. And it should not be found absent there. And it should not be absent from our lives as Christians. It must be in our minds, in our hearts, as we, as we vote, as we make decisions. God brings blessing to this world as His people take His standards of morality to all people. And so I ask you, can you say with David and the other psalmists that you love the law of God? Do you see how it is a blessing to others? Do you see how it is a blessing to your children? Are you regularly impressing God's law upon their hearts? Are you committed, depending on God's grace, to strive to live in accordance with God's law yourself? Friends, we are not saved by keeping the law. We are saved by Christ alone. But if we love Christ, we will love His law and we will be driven in our hearts to obey it. The church blesses the world by taking God's standards of morality to the nations. Second, God is blessing the world right now, fulfilling His promise to Abraham as His people overflow in real love to others. 
Jesus said that people we would know that we are his disciples by our love. We are to love God. We are to love one another. But as we do that, our love should overflow onto the peoples of this world. We should be marked with kindness and compassion by a willingness to serve and sacrifice for the good of others. It is, it should not be strange, and it is not strange that as Christian missionaries have gone to the other parts of the world with the Christian gospel, they have also built hospitals, they have also built schools, they have also sought to feed the hungry and care for the hurting. That should not seem strange to us. For our God has shown us great love, and He has met the deepest needs of our heart. And so as we go to the world, we also should seek to overflow in love. Wherever God leads us, whatever our particular circumstances, we are to seek to be a blessing to others by genuinely caring about them and showing love to them. And I wonder, is, is that you? Does that mark you and your family? Do you look beyond yourself? Do you look beyond your, your own family and your own daily activities of life? And do you have this burning desire to show love to others? What are some practical ways that, that you and your family can interweave your own hearts with the needs of others who are different from you? Should you sponsor a child through World Vision or Compassion International? Should you adopt one of the many handicapped children who are in our foster care system right now what does loving others, in particular, what does overflowing in love on people who are different from you, even people of other races, people of other ethnicities, the peoples of the world, what should that look like for you and your family? But finally, and mainly, preeminently, ultimately, supremely, and you add more lees to that, God is blessing the peoples of this world through His church as they carry the gospel of Jesus to the nations. This is foremost. And everything else goes with this. As we seek to carry the gospel to the world, God's standards of morality go with it. As we carry the gospel to the world, a concern for the welfare of others goes with it. But central is the gospel. The message of Christ crucified for sinners. Forgiveness of sins in His name offered to all who will rest on Him is the message by which the risen Lord Jesus is changing hearts and making people citizens of His kingdom. The fulfillment of Genesis 12, 2 and 3 is Matthew 28, 16-20, the Great Commission. It is through Christ working through His people to take the gospel to the nations, saving souls, bringing them out of darkness into light. That is how the Abrahamic covenant is being fulfilled. And so, dear church, God promised that He would use us to bless the nations. What is your role in getting the gospel to the world? Are you a sender? Or are you a goer? could be that God is calling you to be a goer. One who actually goes to the peoples of the world to share the gospel of Jesus with them. 
Don't assume that you're not a goer. That's, it's so quick to just assume that that's not me. Carefully consider whether you might do more for the kingdom of God if you went than if you stayed. Are you a sinner? Are you one who is called to live here among a place where the church of Christ is well established to work a job, to make money, and then to use that to help support those who are going? Are you one of those who are called to hold the ropes, to be constant in prayer and encouragement and support for those whom God has called to go? We've quoted John Piper many times who says you're either a sender or a goer or disobedient. Which are you? It's amazing how self-centered we Americans can be. How we tend to fully invest ourselves in our own lives, our own situations, our own daily activities. And we're so easy to just close our eyes to the world. And yet we are left here on this earth today for the sake of the nations. And that we, our lives are not being properly spent unless all of our daily activities are under this umbrella of living for what can I do? What is, Christ, what is my role in Christ's church to help get the gospel to the families of the earth? Whether we are goers or senders, we should be all in. We ought to be devoting time, energy, our prayer lives, our resources, our money to do all we can to see the nations reached. What is your role? There is nothing more important than this happening in the world today. Nothing. Now, it is possible that there are some with us this morning who do not know Christ. Could it be that God, even in this service, is using His people to bring you to Himself? Do you not see that you are a great sinner? A rebel? Deserving the wrath of God? Do you not see Jesus as a great Savior for sinners? Willing to forgive your sins, to reconcile you to God? Do you not see that you can be part of a great kingdom with the promise of the new earth ahead of you and best of all, that you can have God in you and with you forever? What sin means so much to you that you would rather have it than all of these great blessings? Turn away from your sin. Turn to Christ. Look to Him. Rest on Him. Throw yourself on Him as your only hope for salvation. Show it by being baptized and getting into a church and getting serious about following Him. And in this way, by resting in Christ, you too will enter into all of these glorious promises. You will be blessed beyond anything you could ever imagine. But you must humble yourself. Turn from your sins. And rest in Christ as King and as Savior. Let's pray.